0: Good afternoon. Thank you for coming to Hudson Institute. Welcome. Uh, my name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here. And we have a very special panel this afternoon where, among other things, we'll be, um, we're celebrating publication of Henry Sokolski's new book, Underestimated, Our Not-So-Peaceful Nuclear Future. Uh, and we have a very, uh, very uh, excellent panel this afternoon to talk about not only about the book, but other uh, proliferation issues not only Iran and North Korea, some of the better-known uh, problematic proliferators at the moment, but uh, we'll also be talking about Asia, a particular interest of, um, of Henry Sokolski's. I just want to introduce the pr- panel briefly, um, <laughs> and I, I also want to explain, we'll we'll have brief introductory statements, then we'll speak for a little bit about the book and other issues, and we'll open it up for a, for a Q&A toward the end. Uh, um, <clears throat> so... If you prepare your, uh, prepare the questions, uh, prepare the questions you have, that will be terrific. Um, Henry Sikulski is the executive director of the Non-Proliferation Policy Education Center, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization founded in 1994 to promote a better understanding of strategic weapons proliferation issues among policymakers, scholars, and the media. He currently serves as an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., Um, Todd Lindberg, to my left, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, based in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office. His areas of research are political theory, international relations, national security policy, and U.S. politics. Lindberg is a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard, uh, where I also work, and an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches in the School of Foreign Service. From 1999 until it ceased publication in 2013, he was editor of the bi-monthly journal Policy Review. And to his left is Mr. Dov Zakheim, a senior fellow at the CNA corpor- uh, Corporation and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, he was senior vice president of Booz Allen Hamilton, where he led the firm's support of the U.S. combatant commanders worldwide. From 2001 to 2004, he was Undersecretary of Defense and chief financial officer for the Department of Defense. From 2002 to 2004, he was also the DOD's coordinator of civilian programs in Afghanistan. Prior to this, he was That's both... That's enough. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's begin, shall we? We're going to open up with Henry. Thank you very much. I thought they were going to get into high school credit. I was only going to go a paragraph for his. Yes.
1: Well, first, uh, let me uh, thank... Uh, Hudson, uh, for holding this event, and John Walters in particular. Uh, Lee is, uh, I guess, truth in advertising, actually is someone who's in a class I teach. (laughs) He shows up occasionally.
0: (laughs) I I didn't know we were still in session, but
1: I didn't Todd is someone who actually uh, has been very generous in publishing some early aspects of the book. And Dove... uh, I guess the apology is you're one of the few sane people I know who's been in government. There are not many, so I'm really impressed by being here and having this panel. Uh, This is uh, the second of two books that I've written. The first was a history of nonproliferation, and uh, I, I wrote that because I teach occasionally, and I noticed that there was no history. Uh, and I always thought that if you were going to teach in a field and there was no history, it wasn't a really a serious field. Uh, but I quickly discovered it was not easy to write a history of things that didn't happen. Uh, it's nonproliferation. It's not clear what it is, but it, it, presumably, if you're good at it, things don't happen. So uh, I went about that history uh, in a kind of intellectual way, and I, it's, it, it's enjoyed a certain amount of uh, use. Uh, Basically, what I did is I looked at what the goals of various nonproliferation initiatives were and what the vision of the next war was for each of these efforts. And it turns out that if you get the problem wrong and you solve it, you can make things worse. And uh, a good example would, I I think, be Adams for Peace, which had this vision, a very insane vision of the next war that uh, is very foreign to our ears because it doesn't make any sense. And they went about solving it. And as a result, they were very concerned about very large stockpiles. And so they weren't very concerned about the spread of very small numbers of nuclear weapons. Uh, As a result, (laughs) there was some proliferation. Um, Now, uh, this book is in the same spirit of trying to make uh, the study of the spread of nuclear weapons a more serious field. Serious fields, uh, like economics, uh, military science, even, even, dare I say it, political science, uh, contends that um, they can see trends, and then they, they can predict trends, and they can give advice based on their, their ability to track trends. I noticed that in this field, if it is one, of uh, the study of the spread of <coughs> nuclear weapons. People don't tend to talk about much more than current events generally. And uh, they, I thought that that was kind of uh, uh, a problem. So I went about first trying to project how bad things could get because I, I, I always say that that's the prime purpose of someone studying these things is to warn about the worst. It's, it's kind of like a church of doom and gloom, if you will. <laughs> And uh, I came up with a really good set of grim prospects, and I presented them. Uh, It was uh, roughly, I called it, the next arms race. And I published in a number of places. I even got, I don't know, uh, it was one of many hundreds of people who could claim they contributed to a commission on the strategic posture in Washington. And, uh, you know, it was published in a book with, you know, like 6,000 pages long. Uh, And it was in there, too. I, Rumsfeld, uh, I think, who was, I used to read everything I wrote because he was on a board that approved my money, uh, I think he read it because he, he, he used a phrase publicly, a sprint to parity, I said a sprint to equality. So I think he read it. But that was it. And I thought, well, I didn't expect to get rich or famous, but I thought, well, everyone's talking about going to zero nuclear weapons. Surely this would get a certain <coughs> amount of play. It didn't. Kind of put the project aside. I said, well, you know, books shouldn't be rushed. And since I've been working on this one off <laughs> and on for 15 years, you know, what, what, was, what was putting it aside for a while? Not much. Uh, I then was asked by John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, my alma mater, to come out and give a talk. And I didn't quite know what I was going to talk about. And then I thought, I know what I'm going to talk about. How do we think about these things? How do we think about nuclear weapons? How do we think about the spread of nuclear weapons? Because it dawned on me, maybe that would explain why, my, you know, my marketing skills were so poor, Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I mean, I, I knew a fair amount about this. You know, everyone reads certain essays. But then I started reading all of them. And there are roughly three schools. And I'd have to say, no matter which school you study or look at, the school that's for nuclear weapons, the school that's against nuclear weapons, or the school that says, you know, they don't much matter anyway. All of them, uh, I think, are quite uh, confident in their thinking, overly confident, uh, to the point in some cases of being wildly optimistic in some cases. Uh, Basically what they say is if you follow what I tell you to do or how to think about these things, You'll be, if not fine, as good as you're going to get. Yeah? Pretty uh, I know, nervy, I, I guess is the word I would you know, describe the entire field and literature discussion of these topics. Um, when you look at these schools, I think each one has something <laughs> useful to say, and I, I mean I think it's a mistake to dismiss or uh, uh, simply uh, fall in line with any of them. You you need to read them all uh, because they have something to say. But I think each has a certain uh, strength and a certain failing. And uh, I'd like to go over that briefly and then conclude. Uh, The first, of course, is is the favorite. uh, Zero. I mean, let's go to zero. Um, By the way, the strength of this is pretty simple. If you get a bunch of (coughs) leaders of countries that have nuclear weapons and you ask them, well, what number can we agree on? There's probably only one number they'll all agree on. It's zero. (laughs) They won't agree on how to get there or whether to go there, but they can agree on that that would be optimal. And I think that carries a certain amount of weight. And people who are conservative uh, tend to dismiss this uh, a little too quickly, uh, in my view. I mean, I think to varying degrees, Reagan actually was drawn to this a bit. More, not as much as people say, but more than people think. And there are books written about that. Uh, the problem with this school is it downplays the risks of going down and the probability of others coming up while you are going down. Um, I think uh, even this administration, I think, is struggling now with uh, the long-term concern that as we come down, maybe other countries like China might come up. And, and admittedly, numbers, uh, it's easy to exaggerate their significance. I mean, there are qualities to these forces. Are they vulnerable? Will they work? Uh, et cetera. But I always say uh, Stalin had a nice metric, and he used to say, I'm told, the quantity has a quality all of its own. And for politicians around the world... If someone has more, that's a problem uh, politically. I think, yeah. So, in any case, uh, they tend to downplay these uh, transitional risks too much. Now, the hawkish supporters, uh, you know, basically have a very sound point uh, that's worth emphasizing: that nuclear deterrence uh, has a role, uh, and and we don't. I think the problem is it's very hard to know what that role is, but but it exists as a proposition, and that they argue it keeps the peace. And, well, that's good. Uh, They tend to uh, emphasize the value of nuclear deterrence, though, in a rather open-ended way. And uh, basically, uh, if you drink heavily with these people, (laughs) what you end up uh, thinking you're hearing is that... uh, nuclear weapons deter. Uh, Better nuclear weapons probably deter better. Uh, More nuclear weapons at some point might be useful. And uh, you then start thinking, well, uh, if that's so, shouldn't our friends have them? Uh, And, you know, how does this work? I mean, you end up with unbounded arguments that go in directions that I think even the supporters of nuclear weapons are a little uneasy with, oddly enough, uh, but they don't know how to rein in their own arguments. Uh, the question of how much is enough is not a question they dwell enough on. Uh, and, and they downplay, I think, uh, the long-term possibilities of accidents and illicit use. By the way, the zero crowd emphasizes the near-term immediacy of this too much. Uh, so they're a little, you know, off. And then, of course, Uh, There is what I would call the radical academic skeptics, uh, which come in two flavors. Um, One says that deterrence is automatic and instantaneous, and the other says that it doesn't work at all. They both conclude that the spread of nuclear weapons, uh, therefore, doesn't matter, and you don't have to worry about it. I think here, uh, although they really come up with a wonderful set of challenges to conventional wisdom, which, some of which I think are actually quite sound, you know, like nuclear terrorism is not that likely. And they explain why. Uh, I think they go a bit too far, to say the least, in dismissing the value of deterrence. Uh, and uh, then they make some rather extreme arguments about why uh, proliferation doesn't matter, therefore. And sometimes uh, there's one school that says that nonproliferation is actually harmful to security because you start getting into wars over uh, mythical problems, they say. I think all that sounds a little off. So uh, where do I come out? Uh, This is the conclusion. I guess uh, fewer sounds better. I I, I think fewer of them uh, in fewer hands probably makes the management of foreign affairs uh, easier. Uh, And I think um, the rejoinder to this, of course, and I would say this as well, is transitions are hell. So if you come down, pay attention to what everyone else is doing and what they have. And I think this is where, you know, we need to perhaps be a little more focused. We tend to focus, for example, in our arms control, an awful lot on Russia because they, you know, sort of like uh, the comment, uh, why do you rob banks? You go where the money is. Where, where do you go to control weapons? Where do you go where the weapons are? Well, they have a lot of weapons. So, so we go and talk with them. Well, fine. Uh, the problem, though, is uh, I think uh, we need to start thinking about countries that are coming up. I think uh, China in particular, but, but the others, uh, India to a lesser extent, I think, is not treated or discussed seriously uh, yet, and, and how the interactions... Uh, with their efforts might be with countries like Russia uh, and then ultimately maybe even the United States. So there are recommendations in the book. They focus on focusing, surprisingly, on Asia, China. I think uh, there are recommendations in the book to maybe focus not just on fissile controls, which is the stuff that you use to make weapons, but on missiles, whether they carry nuclear weapons or not. By the way, the Chinese always say, well, don't don't try to control our nuclear weapons first. Control your own and deal with Russia. You have all of them in comparison to us. I like talking about missiles with the Chinese because they have the most nu- they have the most missiles mm. of any country, and uh, that puts them on their back foot. And these missiles can do things with or without nuclear weapons that can produce strategic results. So uh, the the other things tightening the rules. Uh, on what's peaceful uh, with regard to nuclear energy. I think we have a rather glib view of anything that's claimed to be uh, for the purpose of uh, producing power is allowed. I think that we've learned in the case of Iran that's a little problematical. Uh, I think we need to start getting back to, you know, what we want inspections to do. This has something to do with a phrase called timely warning, which I'll explain in Q&A. And... uh, I think, finally, um, it would be useful for us, in general, to be more caught up early with these problems than fascinated about them when it's too late. I suppose if I was to say anything about North Korea and Iran is it's very, very late. Uh, There are other problems that if we spend a little more time on now, we wouldn't have to do dramatic things to push them way, way into the background further. But if we ignore they will become like Iran. They will become like North Korea. And these involve uh, China and even our allies. And, and, and that's something I think if we spent more time on now, we wouldn't have to do heroic things, <coughs> and it might well uh, keep things much calmer in the future. I suppose I'll just end on that with except one more note. When you go down this list in the last chapter, by the way, I say what might help. I don't know that it will be enough. Uh, Many people say, oh, golly, that's awfully ambitious when you take a look at these things that I suggest. To which I say, well, they're a lot less ambitious than many of the things proposed by these three schools. And if, in fact, the list looks too ambitious then I think we're in much bigger trouble than even the book suggests. Okay? I'm done. Thanks, Henry. That right. should make for an
0: interesting transition. Right. <laughs> um, no, you, you, thanks very much. You did uh, leave us and you left me with many questions I want to follow up on in one second. Uh, before I, I ask Todd c- to continue, uh, could you turn your cell phones off, please? I, I, I should have asked for that before. It will be better if,
2: uh, if we don't
0: hear them again. You sure I think mine is. <laughs> okay.
2: Todd, would you like to... Um,
0: thanks, thanks. The, uh,
2: Henry, congratulations on uh, this book. As noted, I had uh, the pleasure of uh, editing a journal called Policy Review for a number of years. And from time to time, the phone would ring, and it would be Henry calling. And Henry would say, gosh, I, I've been working on something, and I, I'd like you to take a look at it in his characteristically uh, unassuming way. And this would fill me both with uh, a sense of anticipation, excitement, and dread and the anticipation and excitement would be due to Henry's almost preternatural ability to cut to the essence of uh, an issue and to illuminate it in a way in which you had not considered it before. Um, This is very exciting. As as an editor of an intellectual journal, you you, you can't really ask for anything more uh, from an author, particularly, I might add, Uh, For an author who specializes in a rather arcane policy area, one in which uh, the technical vocabulary is intimidating to outsiders, one in which it's very easy for people to uh, uh, portray uh, those who uh, uh, venture into this uh, field to toil as not really knowing enough to have an opinion of any account, uh, and so forth. So Henry has this, uh, this tremendous ability to wade through all this. He's, he's, uh, his expertise in all of the technical matters is, I think, uh, second to none. But uh, in addition, he has this quality of making uh, everything quite accessible. Accessible to uh, those who are novices in the matter, uh, accessible to uh, those who are reasonably uh, uh, in, involved in the issue but not at a high level of uh, of technical specification, and also I mean, uh, you know, the, the ability to address uh, a fully uh, uh, technically competent uh, audience at, at the highest level. This is a rare quality, <laughs> uh, and, and as I said, I, the one that, as an editor, you just can't get enough of. Uh, if, if every piece that came in had that quality to it, um, you, there wouldn't really be so much a need for an editing function as there is just a, a sort of compiling function. Um, well, that was, the, that was the, the exciting part. The dread part uh, was the result of Henry's conclusions, uh, which were almost always, uh, frankly, depressing uh, and unwelcome. <laughs> uh, and this occurred across a whole range of subjects, some of which were directly related to the nuclear proliferation questions. Uh, but but you know, he, he, he sent me a piece about nuclear power plants for commercial use that I found depressing. <laughs> uh, why? Because uh, I, I, didn't, I had no idea uh, what Henry w- w- was about to explain in this article, which is just how uh, uneconomical and how heavily subsidized uh, nuclear power uh, is around uh, uh, the world. And therefore, to the extent anybody was harboring the illusion that we might be able to make a little progress on uh, reducing our carbon emissions say by the increased use of nuclear power well uh, this was not an economical proposition and as henry would also tell you it was also rather a dangerous approach for an entire host of other reasons so these were the uh, these were the uh, the pleasures and uh, uh, and pains of henry calling on the phone and offering something and i see that he has now distilled uh, all of uh, or much of this, uh, uh, it, this distillation is indeed the right word it, it's it's not that the that uh, when you get to a level of purity, uh, you, you 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 sacrifice something. In the case of uh, alcohol, for example, which, uh, you you know by the time you get to pure grain alcohol, uh, you know you have you have something that is essentially flavorless. Um, so there is a loss, but at the same time, you have something that's very powerful, and in fact, uh, uh, something that, that, that uh, you can you have to actually be, be kind of careful with. Um, so, I, th- I think that in this book, what we've got is a, is, is, is a distillation of a lot of the work that Henry has been uh, doing over the years. And uh, it, it is, therefore, you, sh- it, you, you should, in addition to coming to this panel, which I commend you for, you should take uh, the time to read this book. And I will tell you something else about this book. It will not take you long to read. Uh, this is not a long book. This is the essence of proper distillation technique, uh, which is to say, it is. Uh, it is focused. It is on point. It is uh, riveting in a way that also, alas, evokes the, the dread uh, problem to which I have previously referred, uh, and uh, well worth your time. It's also got some remarkably uh, detailed footnotes, which will enable anyone who uh, develops an interest in uh, some of the topics that Henry covers here but wishes to uh, uh, go further into them uh, will find uh, ample resources there for, uh, for looking into it. Now I to. I just want to give you a couple examples of what I mean by Henry's uh, clarity, which I'm just going to do by reading a couple of past, short passages from from his book to you, uh, and uh, which is to say, after uh, after the uh, considering these various schools that Henry uh, decided about, uh, he talks a bit about uh, how, uh, uh, how how you might summarize what we really know about nuclear weapons. And their use uh, in the world, as opposed to what we might theorize about nuclear weapons and their use in the world. And Henry writes All we know is that the United States fired nuclear weapons in anger on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that the United States and Russia threatened to use them several times during the Cold War, but that for some reason, since 1945, they never have been used. That is a cold, honest description of reality. The rest, of what we think we know or often say that we know about nuclear weapons in this period uh, is to some degree or another uh, the result of our reasoning and our theorizing about the facts that we have. And therefore, it is all the more important to uh, take the tack that Henry has taken, which is to look very carefully uh, at the claims that have been made as essentially truth claims, not uh, just uh, speculative conclusions uh, about uh, Uh, about these weapons. And then I will make one other additional point uh, by way of quotation from Henry, which is uh, his uh, statement that uh, each of our current views of nuclear proliferation then ends up serving our highest hopes. Now, I am not uh, the world's most pessimistic uh, human being. Uh, but when you, when you hit a statement like that and you realize the possibility that the theorizing that you have done is essentially or, or maybe uh, just an argument from interest, uh, which is to say uh, a desire that the world not be so dangerous and that its precariousness not be so uh, uh, evident – uh, that really, you're you're operating from a premise uh, that your hope uh, is driving your analysis. Well, I mean, this is this is a this is a worrisome problem, um, and uh, you know, I, I think if you look at, at some of the uh, charts that Henry has placed in this book, when one of which I, I had the pleasure of publishing in Policy Review, which documents what the uh, it's it's essentially a diagram on of a of the relationship between a, a large number of proliferated uh, nuclear states and their interacting relations with each other. It looks like something that you might have done with a Spirograph uh, in your youth, these uh, points of connection, uh, each of which is a potentially volatile uh, source of danger, none of which is adequately explained away in any sense by uh, the theoretical constructions that have been imposed upon nuclear weapons. I think and uh, it, it's enough to... Uh, Oh, uh, you've got it there. Good.
1: Mm. I think it's the end. It's well, kind of that's like it.
2: because it's, it's the, it's the scary one. <laughs> there it is. I should have copyrighted this. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I I did pos- this the po- 20 possible, years ago.
2: <laughs> our possible proliferated future includes 136 bilateral chances for strategic miscalculation disregarding the intersection uh, of uh, these with other parties. Does that look like something we should try to... Uh, uh, mitigate, it certainly does to me. Do I think we're going to, that we've been very successful in that. Alas, no. Do I think Henry has some very good ideas, uh, very practical, which he spells out at the end of the book? Yes. Uh, am I optimistic? No. Am I willing to end on a pessimistic note? No. What do I say then? <laughs> Don't worry. Be happy.
3: <laughs> I'm supposed
2: to say read the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you very much. So, would you oh, like that's to, a uh, tough act to follow.
4: <laughs> you know, you heard that Henry wrote for Policy Review and obviously enhanced the journal, but I also wrote for it, which is probably why I closed down. Um, uh, between Henry and Todd, you've got a good sense of the book, and since I wrote the introduction, I don't want to repeat what I wrote. It's only two and a half pages. Um, I want to carry the conversation a little bit further Uh, I'm not a big believer in schools of thought. That's theology. That's for the church. Uh, I've always found it interesting that a lot of the leading strategic thinkers really do sound like Thomas Aquinas. Um, and, And I haven't changed that view in 30 years, and I've been around a lot of these folks. What Henry brings to the table that's different is he has been in the bureaucracy. He actually worked on nonproliferation issues in the Pentagon. So he knows the art of the possible, as well as the thoughts of impossible. And I think that permeates the book. He's not giving you ideas that are impractical. Some of them are harder to implement than others. But none of these are out of the realm of the possible. That's really important when you look at a chart like that. A couple of thoughts, really, that arise from that, that that I had noted to myself here. The first is everybody's focusing on Iran. Uh, The real issue, of course, is what do other states do if Iran gets the bomb? Frankly, that's the issue. Uh, There's loads and loads of talk of how this is an existential threat to Israel. Well, as Henry kind of shows in his book, Israel's a pretty existential threat to Iran if it wants to be. Uh, that's not the concern. The concern is, and Henry points this out, if you have at least the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, Turks, the Egyptians, maybe others, going in the same direction, then all it takes is one mistake. And nobody thinks about command and control. Okay, you get this capability. How do you control it? We have a very, very, we in the United States have a very sophisticated way of controlling nuclear weapons, even though every once in a while we read in the newspaper how planes take off full of them. Um, but by and large, that doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is because we've spent decades trying to ensure that things like that don't happen. Can we say the same about the Pakistanis? We think about North Korea selling to everybody. How about the Pakistanis? They've been pretty good at selling, too. Do we think about their command and control? I know the Indians worry about Pakistani command and control. I don't know how good Indian command and control is. Mm. So if you get new states picking up this capability, how good is their command? How good will Iranian command and control be? So that's a major issue there that I think requires a lot more thought and that that prompts. Now there's another group up that isn't up there. And that should be up there, because I think Henry's right. There aren't too many, uh, lo- there aren't too many scenarios where a bomb in a suitcase really is, is going to materialize. But what about non-states that are practically states, like ISIS, like Hezbollah, like maybe the Houthis at some point they have pretty much taken over Yemen? We might choose to call them non-state actors, but they don't behave like non-state actors. They behave like states that we don't like. Suppose they obtain these kinds of weapons. Have money, we'll buy. North Koreans will sell to anybody. Maybe the Iranians will sell to anybody. Pakistanis will sell to anybody. So we have a whole new category that we need to worry about that isn't even up there. But I think what Henry's done is prompted the thoughts, because he's... He's shown that that the scope of this thing is not just about Russia. And oh, by the way, the fact that Mr. Putin is making nuclear noises now is going to get more and more people not to focus on that. They'll go right back to focusing on what they've always been comfortable focusing on, which is Russia slash Soviet Union. Same, same. And once again, we won't think about China. Even this president, with whom I tend not to agree, but On nonproliferation, he's got a point. But he's not going to do very much on this. Because all his people are going to go back to focusing on Russia. And in any event, he doesn't want to beat up on the Chinese for this reason. He's got other issues with the Chinese. And will we really beat up on the Pakistanis when we still kind of need them in (gasps) Afghanistan? And the North Koreans, well, there's not much we can do about that. And the Iranians, it looks like we're giving them the... We're opening the barn door, the nuclear barn door. So I don't see any efforts to think beyond Russia right now or to think beyond the states that have nuclear weapons and to think into the non-state arena as well. One other thing that uh, neither Henry nor Todd mentioned, and, and Henry points this out in the book, and I think it's really important, you know, And having a nuclear weapon doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to start a war or or cause military activity on your part. The Israelis bombed Osirak. The Israelis bombed Syria. We've done some things as well. The fear of somebody else having a nuclear weapon can cause an attack. Now, think this through. Suppose the Israelis go off half-cocked and decide at some point between now and 10 years when this deal is is completed, if indeed the the deal was started in the first place, but after 10 years, you know, everybody says the Iranians will have a pretty much an open field. Um, Suppose the Israelis decide to attack Iran. Now what? Do we get dragged in? Who else gets dragged in? These are things we have to think about. It's not just the fact that Iran has a weapon and can use it. It's the fact that others might decide to do something to Iran because it has a weapon and can use it. Right. And that is a very, very important second-order consequence that doesn't get enough thought. And in many ways, what Henry's book is all about are these second- and third-order consequences he actually thinks them through. Not too many people do. And the reason they don't is, A, because it's hard. And B, because if you're caught up in theology, you're off in an entirely different direction. And if you're in the government, you barely have time keeping up with the first order issues, much less the second and third order ones. And again, Henry knows that because he was in government. So my bottom line is, read this book not just to see the the stuff that's obvious, like the Chinese buildup and what we ought to do about it. But think about the second and third order issues and how we deal with them. Henry lays out a menu of how he thinks they might be dealt with. And as he says, they may or may not be the right choices. But he's thinking about it. And we all need to think about it. And if we've got better ideas, Go to Henry, because I'm sure he'll absorb them. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, I, that was uh, true. I want to come back to uh, Aquinas later. Uh, <laughs> but I do actually want to come back to the idea of, like, why uh, I think that both you and Todd are sort of describing it as a, as a, th- uh, a theology of sorts, and Henry sort of breaks it down. It's much more uh, stark. Um, but before, before we move to that, I'd like actually to... To come back to you, Henry, and I'd like to ask you, before we get to thinking about second and third order, how do we address um, how do we address issues before they get there? In other words, what are some of the problems? You and I have spoken about this a bit in the past. Um, what are some of the issues that we can address now before it gets to something like uh, a situation with North Korea or with Iran where, in some senses, the horse is already out of the barn? What are the different issues that we can address? perhaps including China, or especially focusing on China? And what do we do?
1: Tomorrow, I'm going to catch a plane. I'm going with some people who are even older than I am, and they're more distinguished, thankfully, Uh, to Tokyo, Seoul, and Beijing. And uh, we're going to go... to make a modest proposal, which is, uh, look, each one of us, including the United States, has a a program to take weapons-usable plutonium, and even though it's extremely uneconomical to make into commercial fuel, we're all going to play with this. And uh, when you do, you end up dealing with, are you ready for this? Tons. That's a, a each ton is a thousand kilograms. By the way, each weapon is roughly three to four kilograms. So you do the math. That makes tons, you're dealing with tons of material and uh, we're going to suggest that well, since uh, each one of our countries has domestic constituencies that are pushing to complete these projects and we have no real political ability alone to push back on our domestic constituencies. But we know if we go ahead, uh, essentially, particularly China, South Korea, and Japan, if they go ahead with these programs to, to make this fuel, within, I don't know, 20 years, there could be tens of thousands of bombs worth of material piled up uh, in Asia. I think there's a chart here. Oh, this is this is an eye chart, so I apologize. But it does have an X and Y axis. Uh, I, I will not make apologies for that. But essentially, next March, the Japanese want to open a plant that would make each year as much weapons material necessary to field a force as large as all the nuclear weapons we already have deployed. Every year, they will make that. By the way, Chinese want to do the same thing. They have, they have some plans for that. They, they aren't co And, of course, the South Koreans always say, well, we're the shrimp between two whales. We do whatever they do. Yeah? How, while we're arguing over sand reefs and rocky islands, uh, will the presence of tens of thousands of bombs' worth of plutonium hanging around each one of these countries make that management set easier? I just, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe this isn't a problem, but I don't see how it makes anything easier. Uh, In the the latest issue uh, of this book, by the way, the the book gets updated uh, because I've decided not to go with a private publisher, although I was offered by two publishers to to go that route. Uh, There is an introduction by a man I worked for, Andy Marshall, before it was was you, and he talks about a theory of uh, foreign affairs that is uh, akin to studying how avalanches occur where you have problems that mount up, in this case I like to say a pile of plutonium, and something sets it off, but you don't know what the heck it is in, an, in advance. Think World War I. So what we're going to suggest is, well, why don't we just all simultaneously announce the informal decision not to proceed with these programs and then turn on our domestic uh, constituents and say, well, you know, we'd like to listen to you, but, you know, we've sort of got an international thing of sorts here that we're backing off doing this. You can understand. I don't know if it'll work. But there's an example of something that doesn't cost anything, doesn't threaten anybody. Everyone saves money uh, that you can do now that could avert possibly uh, a nuclear World War three. You wait long enough, you won't be able to do anything about it.
0: Why haven't they already come up with the idea themselves? Why do they need... I
1: think it's because uh, we've made mainstream the idea that uh, proliferation is what we worry about if our enemies get certain things, and it's what we help our friends do. And so... uh, By the way, I'm paraphrasing my former boss, James Lilly, Ambassador Lilley. And he said, well, how did I do? And I, I said, well, you get half credit. And he says, well, how's that? I said, well, imagine he once was ambassador to, to South Korea. If you and your wife are sitting out on the back porch of your diplomatic residence on a Saturday, having a Long Island iced tea, and you see a rocket headed north and on the side of the rocket, it says ROK. Is that a good or a bad day for you? And he said, Oh crap, so we have to worry about our allies too. <laughs> and I said, Yeah, now you get full credit. <laughs> now, uh, the point here is because we want to be friends with our friends, friends apparently uh, don't tell friends that they got a problem. And so, literally, our government has difficulty raising the issue of the opening of this plant to Japan because we want them to be friends and we don't want to cause trouble. Hmm. The same thing with the Koreans. And oddly enough, oddly enough, the same thing with the Chinese. We have an agreement we just reached. There will be a hearing, I hope to testify, uh, July 8th, about a nuclear agreement we are wanting to strike for the next 30 years with China so that they can do the exact same activity without having to ask permission of us. Unlike most normal uh, agreements where you have to ask every time you take material out of a reactor, strip out the plutonium and start climbing up the curve. Well, so there are, there are plenty of, it's a target rich environment if you want to get ahead of the curve. But you have to get to, as they say, the left of the problem. You can't wait until they explode a device on the lawn of the White House and say, my gosh, we should do something. We tend to wait. Uh, as, uh, I think there's a line in this book in the back. Uh, I got it from Victor Galinsky, and he said, well, first they tell you there's no problem, and then when they're finally convinced there's a problem, they tell you, well, it's too late, there's no solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way of putting this is uh, I once had an assistant. He said, oh, well, this, is, this office uh, that we're running deals with dog catcher issues. And a dog catcher issue, as you tell the mayor... There's going to be an outbreak of rabies. And he says, oh, my God, what do we do? And you say, we're going to inoculate, right? And he says, well, that's great. And then everyone will be fine. I said, well, yeah, except one or two puppies might die out of thousands. Oh, my God, we can't allow that. Why don't you just hold off and wait until I get done with my term in office and then keep studying? That's how these things get treated because if there's any friction at all, you back off. I think it's time we kind of step up our game a bit.
0: Steph, can I ask you to – I think that is that is actually a good lead into the second and third order second and third order problems. If you can – I guess if I can ask you to lay out uh, more explicitly the scenario that Henry was talking about, with the rocket flying by that says ROK, but you uh, – in your introductory remarks, you mentioned Israel. Again, we're used to framing – the big problem is – the big problem is the Iranian program. If you can lay out a little more clearly why – Uh, why an Israeli response, and I think we have a general idea, but if you can lay out more explicitly why that's an enormous issue as well.
4: Well, um, uh, let me start with a a story. A Kuwaiti friend of mine told me some years ago that the best way to knock out the Iranians is um, to take American F, at the time, uh, F-16s, put uh, Israeli stars on them, and attack Iraq, Iraq, Iran rather, and he said uh, that way I know the job will get done and we can blame the Israelis. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there's something to that in the sense that it's very unlikely that Israel will be able to locate much less knock out uh, everything that's in Iran. Iran is a huge country and they haven't been stupid. I mean apart from burying things underground They've spread their facilities all over the place. It would be exceedingly difficult for the Israelis to knock everything out. The argument they sometimes make is, well, you know, look, in Osirak we knocked it out and there never was another Iraqi attempt seriously to develop a nuclear weapon. Well, in the first place, that was one target. In the second place, the Iranians have spent billions and billions, tens of billions, on this program, and should there be an attack by the Israelis, or for that matter by us, how many years do you think it'll take before they take mu- they just go to the Pakistanis or the North Koreans, having first kicked out any inspectors that are still stupid enough to stay in the country, and uh, acquire something that they've been working on for decades? So, at the end of the day, an Israeli strike wouldn't succeed. I'm not sure an American strike would succeed. But an Israeli strike could very well prompt us to come in. So now you've got the United States fighting another war in the Middle East, as if we don't have enough of them already. What will that prompt? Who else is going to respond? What if we knock out targets that we didn't think we were going to knock out? Remember the Chinese embassy in Belgrade? How are people going to respond? Would they respond necessarily in the Middle East? We have this notion. I mean, government has a lot of trouble walking and chewing gum at the same time. And we really prefer that all our enemies agree that only one of them will give us a hard time at any given time. <laughs> I mean, think about just Afghanistan and Iraq, how hard it has been for us. And these aren't exactly the major conflicts that people plan to have to deal with. These aren't the superpowers of the world. And look how much trouble we've had with just these two pikers. So... We really want just one at a time, please. Well, what happens if it's not one at a time? What happens if we get involved in something in the Middle East and that nutcase in North Korea decides this is the time? To me, that's the problem.
0: Todd, if I can ask you to, if I want to return to something that you said before. Uh, I think the way I I interpreted was about hope driving analysis. Um, So insofar as it is part of... uh, It's part of a larger debate now whether or not the, whether or not either the United States or Israel should do something about the Iranian nuclear program, among other reasons, to find some way to prevent, uh, prevent the realization of the graphic that we saw before with a uh, multi-proliferated Middle East. So when we talk about that, is that hope driving analysis? That... I don't know, when we talk about how does, it, how does it get stopped, or should we accept Henry's... I think in lots of ways Henry would say it's, it's, it's kind of too late for that now, time
2: to move on to other issues. Well, you know, a couple of uh, years ago I published a piece in the Weekly Standard called The Coming War with Iran, uh, which I uh, uh, in which I described uh, the, the collision course that I thought that we might be on uh, and uh, the possibility of... Uh, Uh, an Israeli uh, military action triggering, you know, at some point uh, as the Israeli F-15s are revving up on the tarmac or something like that, uh, uh, presents the United States with a choice of uh, if this is going to happen, do we get involved in doing the job or not? And I wasn't especially optimistic about the uh, prospects for a negotiated uh, settlement at the time. Well, I I, I don't think that uh, if, if, if the war is coming... With Iran, it won't be that war. It's probably going to be something different, and it won't be any more pleasant uh, to, to contemplate than, than the other one. But it seems that, uh, at least for now, um, we, have a, uh, uh, we have this in- incipient uh, uh, n- nuclear agreement uh, with Iran. Uh, but I, but I, in certain respects, I don't think that agreement is really a- about the Iranian nuclear program or, uh, uh, or, or, or containing it or hauling it. And the reason... Uh, that I think we can say that is because the United States has more or less systematically abandoned every single threshold uh, position that it had previously stated. We have every, and i am no—I'm not an expert in the in these negotiations, but uh, but uh, but for example, uh, you know, that won't be necessarily a disclosure on uh, what the previous uh, military active dimension of the of the Iranian nuclear program was, and, uh, and and on and on across a variety of lines. So it seems to me that our policy is actually, uh, in certain respects, to get to the point at which we can lift sanctions, which is to say we, have a pol- we may have a policy of regime change uh, in Iran, but uh, it'll be the regime change of the sort that uh, will be driven by Iran's uh, opening, uh, by, uh, by the free flow of goods and commerce, et cetera, into Iran, uh, as, opposed to the, uh, uh, as opposed to other types of uh, regime change that one might contemplate, which to me sounds like, uh, just another version of Whig history. Um, it, it, in other words, well, okay, we'll lift the sanctions and then everything will be okay. This regime will uh, ad- change and adapt in such ways that it won't really feel that it needs to uh, cross the nuclear threshold fully. Uh, possibly there'll be some cap- cap- capabilities held in abeyance, et cetera. And, uh, um, well, that's, uh, I, th- I think that's a, it's a pretty big gamble. Uh, is hope is not a policy, as they say. Uh, although most policies are undertaken with some element of hope, at least that they will, uh, you know, improve conditions. But, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, you, you look at this and it's very difficult to um, uh, to be optimistic. Henry, you were? Yeah. Um,
1: I was on a panel. I was dragged in uh, to talk about the Iran deal, even though we don't exactly have it yet. Uh, Chance we might not ever. I, I don't know I don't know how great that is. And the comment I made is that there are only two possibilities. The first, I think, Todd has done an excellent job explicating, which is, don't worry, it should sort out. Let's, let's try this. <laughs> and by the way, regime change without a whole lot of encouragement. In other words, this is a, a laissez-faire approach to uh, regime change. I said, the the other possible uh, way in which you get a happy ending, by the way, it might work. I I, I don't put a lot of stock in it, but I mean, there's got to be some percentage possibility, maybe 5%, 10%, I don't know. The other possibility to make a happy ending to that deal is, as best we can tell, the deal's going to have certain restrictions for a while. and We don't know how long, because they haven't finalized But they talk in terms of, like, 10 years or something like that. One possibility, then, is that in the intervening period, you tighten up the rules everywhere else. Because at the end, they say, well, we will be controlled as everyone else is under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and the IEA. Well, that would tend to encourage anyone who wants a happy ending and is not certain about this regime change, proposition to want to tighten the rules up for everyone else so that by the time the thing runs out the world is a slightly different place. Now again you could say oh but that's nutty. Who could who could attempt that? Well but if you don't we know what might happen. It's in this book.
0: Can I ask you what you mean tighten up? What, well, for example, what rules and you mean well, you know, other example, people who are in the, the NPT things, or? You
1: know, one of the things, that, look this this negotiation uh, may be uh, simply as cynical as Todd says, but by, by the accident of who's negotiating it, the five nuclear weapon states who signed the NPT, are principal amongst the, the negotiators, it is the first time since uh, 1968 that the major nuclear weapons states have sat down and tried to tackle what is the one problem with the NPT, the principal one, which is what's safe and what's dangerous, what is peaceful and what isn't. And so they're basically saying, well, we think if you have enrichment and you, you, know, you do this and you do that, it's okay, is a way of doing an arbitration about those things that were left unnegotiated or left not negotiated clearly in the NPT. Everyone is saying, well, will this be the model for the rest of the world? Now, one way to go about it, if you want to be upbeat and, and, and very ambitious, is to say, oh, well, no, this is a one-off. I mean, after all, we screwed up here. We let them do dangerous activities. Uh, we are going to prohibit reprocessing under this deal, apparently, for the indefinite future, whatever that means. And we're going to restrict enrichment because, well, we don't like it. And, and we know we can't really safeguard it. Um, but then we're going to lift the sanctions after we get, uh, and the controls, after we get confident about how nice the Iranians are. Uh, you know, and we, we think that'll take X number of years. Well, it would be nice if, as a, you know, a default safety, if at the end of 10 or 15 years, you went around the world and said, you know, let's make sure this is the last one of these how about we extend that no reprocessing ban everywhere for commercial purposes? And uh, frankly, let's not reprocess anymore for making bombs. And with the enrichment, let's make sure it doesn't spread anywhere anymore. We don't want it to be a right. Now, if you went around doing that, by the time they lift the controls, you might be in a better position to say, well, we've got to continue what you have already under. But if everyone takes from this, oh, well, that's what we want and that's what we're going to do, well, you're in a world of hurt. How could they
0: not? I mean, It's still unclear to me well, how other uh, Well, look, there are a couple would... of
1: reasons why not. By the way, people do consider one thing or uh, two things when they're dealing with activities that, that are... are uh, uneconomical and dangerous. There's safety and their pocketbook. We don't talk enough about this. When was the last time we explained that if you use plutonium-based fuels, you reprocess, you do fast reactors, you do Gen 4, you do liquid sodium, cool this, that, and the other, you're going to lose your shirt even worse than just doing regular nuclear power. We don't say that anymore. And do we explain to people that getting your own or an option is a little bit like trying to improve your health with heroin? We don't say that enough.
4: Yeah. Don, would you like to... Yeah, there's, there's a whole other aspect to this that uh, I think we should consider. North Korea has a weapon, really, in order to prevent anybody from trying to attack North Korea. I am not. Sh- I don't even know whether the Iranians will push ahead with uh, a program if they get a deal. They may do exactly what Henry says, and then it may-, may be worthwhile trying to get the rest of the world to, in effect, copy that kind of a deal. The real threat, I think, from Iran, apart from the fact that other countries may decide, no, we don't really want to do what Henry says, we want to get our own weapon. But perhaps a more serious threat, and this may be just because I used to manage money in the Pentagon, is that whenever those sanctions are lifted, Iran is going to come into an awful lot of money. I'm talking about tens and tens of billions of dollars. And that's not even to mention the oil that they'll be able to sell, which will bring them even more money. Now, if you honestly believe that every one of those dollars will go to the betterment of the Iranian people. There are several bridges I want to sell you. It would not take much to double the capacity of Hezbollah. Because they give them a couple of billion dollars a year. It would not take much to reinforce the Houthis or the, the crazy Shia militias, the really extreme ones in Iraq. or. Maybe to fund more trouble in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. Or realize the Iranian claim that Bahrain is really one of their provinces. When you're, when you're going to be rolling in tens of billions of dollars, you can do an awful lot of damage and tell the United States and everybody else, sir, ma'am, I'm not going to do a thing that's outside the steel. I'm not going right. to cheat one iota.
1: By the way, one of the, one of the most frightening scenarios that uh, I proposed at the Heritage Foundation that everyone was uh, not thinking about was yes, and then the worst thing that might happen is they might comply.
4: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what, 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 what do you
4: mean by that? They, they would comply because what, really, what they really want is the money. Right. I mean, look, why, look how successful this country has been despite <laughs> sanctions, despite everything, despite getting beaten up in a war with Iraq. Look at them. I mean, King Abdullah of Jordan said there was this thing called the Shia arc, And no everybody laughed at him. Well, if you look, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, it's kind of an ark, you know. And that's just for starters. I mean, they could, if they, you know, people are predicting that they could come into as much as 50 to 100 billion dollars. They could throw 10 or 15 billion at their people and still have 35 billion to do all kinds of wild things with. And then we'll really have a problem. Because if we can't walk and chew gum, what do we do when we have to run? Yeah.
1: By the way, that said, that's not an argument, I suspect, for not trying to tighten things. Up. No, I, I agree it's with you. It's just that your problem's deeper than nuclear. That's, that's my point. Run. That's
4: my point. <laughs> yes. That, and you,
1: I thoroughly agree. I mean, that, that, that's right. I mean. Uh, You know, I think one thing to keep in mind, I was thinking about your comment about ISIL. Uh, One of the comments I made uh, recently was, you know, ISIL uh, suggests the problem of opening up a major nuclear power program in Saudi Arabia. And people say, well, how's that? I said, well, imagine if there were as many nuclear power plants in Iraq as they plan to have in Saudi Arabia right now we would be looking at the ISIL problem a very different way. And I think if, I mean, I've listened to the rationale for the nuclear program uh, in Saudi Arabia. By the way, it has something to do, I'm told, about supporting their petrochemical industry because they need natural gas feed. And the argument is, well, as they draw more natural gas feed to compete, in in the petrochemical area, which by the way, they're they're not going to be able to because natural gas is falling everywhere else in price. So good luck with the petrochemical effort. They're going to need to substitute it with something. So we'll use nuclear. Well, oh my gosh. I said, well, but it's expensive and, you know, don't you have success and problems politically in Saudi Arabia? And what about, you know, if people start challenging the rule there? Well, it's kind of like, oh, well, that's... That's later, you know. First, we've got to f- focus on the petrochemical problem. I think we need to think about the expansion of certain nuclear activities in certain areas with an eye towards the point that they raised. Clearly.
0: Well, can I ask you, since we're talking about, and I, I want to open it up for questions in just one second, but since we're talking about second- or third-order effects and we're talking about ISIL or ISIS, what have you, and the Israelis, if you're talking about... Uh, proliferation in Iraq, I mean, both right now in Dera, where they had, uh, or or rather Dera I mean, this is a contested area in Syria between ISIS and the regime. And uh, Osirak, I guess my point is, had the Israelis not knocked out these reactors, what would be the issue right now? So if we're talking about second or third order effects and we're talking about the Israelis, it could be a problem if they hit Iran. Will they drag the United States in? Another effect I'm saying is Iran is not necessarily that stable. If there is regime change, what does it look like if there's a fight in the regime over a nuclear file? So, I I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is just look at those second- or third-order effects on the other hand as well. Well,
1: bottom line is uh, when you're in a hole, they say, stop digging. If you look at our policies and that of other major nuclear supplier states, we're all the same. You can't have enough of this. It's really important that everyone get it. I think you may want to kind of look at that a little more carefully.
0: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We
1: promote pretty much the spread of this technology as in principled uh, a way as Russia, China, France, Japan. Maybe, given these concerns, we need to be a little more vocal publicly about the qualifications. By the way, we do have the qualifications, but we mutter under our breaths. And when it comes to Saudi Arabia, they're going to get what they want in due course if they want to spend the money
0: because we do not make the case against it. So Even though the president has said the Saudis should not have the bomb, they should... Well, but you that's a that different no than real way than to nuclear,
2: uh, all the means to get it. Right. That's peaceful.
1: Where have you been, right.
2: Henry? Would you say that you, you start with the assumption that anybody who is developing a major nuclear program these days is up to something?
1: No. I think you could. I mean, although I think all of this, I mean, I, they're up to one thing. They're not doing addition and subtraction correctly. If you look at the economics of uh, Electricity. Uh, I think the investment in boiling the water with with uranium is rebuttable now, only because of the natural gas markets, which even in East Asia have finally come to back to sanity. They're back down to seven dollars per million BTU where they belong, and they'll go. I bet lower. Uh, I think. That aside, you can have these programs, and God knows you have them, and so you have to keep them going. It doesn't make sense to unplug them. But for God's sakes, uh, don't encourage the fuel making. I think you need to up the game about inspections. I mean, we have plants in places like Pakistan that you can only visit once every 90 days to take a look at what happened in the plant. Well you want to have the ability to know what's going on in that plant, I would say, remotely through a camera and other sensors every five minutes. You can do this technically. But you have to change the rules and make it clear that you want near real-time surveillance. Um, I think a good portion of the facilities, the IA safeguards voluntarily allow this. Maybe we shouldn't make it voluntary. We should say everyone should do this. If you did that and if you had more inspectors, I think you could have nuclear power programs, even in some sporty places. But without those things, no, I think it's risky, in and, and at least the sporty places. Let me give you an example. In Iran, we say Bushir is, is peaceful. Uh, by the way, this was something the Bush administration did. Big mistake. They backed off in 2005. They cut a deal with the Russians. We'll focus on enrichment. We'll let you do the, the reactor. Big mistake. So we did that. And now, about, I want to say, two or three years ago, in October, uh, they turned the reactor off after about eight months. There was about 100 kilograms of weapons-grade plutonium in that reactor, and there were no inspectors in it. Well, We flew all these drones over to make sure that nothing left the building. I don't think you want to do it that way. I think you want to have somebody on site that can check it out, and you want some near real-time surveillance. If you did, you wouldn't have this emergency. We need do to start talking about Do this.
0: you think we could have had that, had, had the Bush administration not made that uh, agreement with the Russians what's your
1: I think you can have this if you start ta- talking candidly about these kinds of scenarios mm-hmm. that have happened they're not imaginary but we repressed discussing this
0: um, before we I, I just wanna ask if, if we can come back to the if you can talk about the which I think is sort of what Henry was getting at right there why has it been more like theology and less like analysis
4: well, it's a kind of analysis, but fundamentally, and I think Henry made the point, after 1945, we've never seen this. So it's all speculation. Mm. So it's all how many elephants on the head of a pin. Right. We just, you know, uh, we have, in fact, we've never even seen, uh, we've never seen an attack with a hydrogen bomb. Right. Never. All we've this- never seen angels either. Some people say they've seen them.
1: This is all faith based policy it's, making. That's exactly what it is. You know, you're either in the church of doom and gloom or you're, you know, it, you're, all, you're for right. silly hope.
4: They're all churches, and you've got loads and loads of books, which theology is full of as well. Right. Todd, did you want to make a.
0: I think you made the same point that it's. You know, that it's
2: yeah, well, look, you know, I, uh, for Henry, um, a book he edited a few years back for, uh, called Getting Mad, which is essentially a review of. Mutual assured destruction policy. Asked me to. He was having trouble getting somebody to write the. Well, what do you do with nuclear weapons? Chapter and that it fell to me, and so I looked through a number of, you know, scenarios and asked the question. Well, you know, what what, would the United States use nuclear weapons under these circumstances? Um, You know, um, conventional warfare, uh, biological attack, and you know, I, I pretty much reached the conclusion that the United States. Um, would not use nuclear weapons except in a very unlikely scenario of um, a large-scale nuclear attack on U.S. territory. Um, And the reason for that, however, should not encourage – it should not give anyone um, uh, uh, cause for excessive uh, optimism or hope. It's that we've got huge conventional capabilities, and we can do immense immense damage uh, to others – um, by conventional means, uh, you know, up to and, and including—I um, I, don't—the I, problem with the, with the term "regime change" is that is, is not the is that it, it sort of implies something that is very doubtful, which is the installation of something in, in the place. But 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 for regime destruction purposes, which is to say, what would we do to it? Uh, a government uh, that uh, d- uh, directly or indirectly uh, un- undertook a major biological attack on the United States. Well, I, I would assume we would, you know, we would want to. We would no longer want it to be on our planet with us, and and we have this capability. But you know, that that is not that is simply not the calculus um, that you you get if you're if you don't have this overwhelming uh, conventional uh, power, uh, it looks very different. And, uh, uh, you know, and so, and then then we're just, you know, we're back to the, we're we're back to the conventional, I I think um, uh, uh, theological questions again.
0: Um, I'm gonna open it up right now. Um, There's a gentleman back there. Do we have a microphone back there as well? A gentleman right here, right on the aisle. And if, uh, I'm going to ask you to, Keep it short, please. Identify yourself and and please do ask a question and and don't make a comment.
5: That's a lot of rules. All right. uh, Robert Choretta, I'm president of International
0: Investor. Can you stand up, please?
5: I'm Robert Choretta, president of International Investor. Uh, In short, everyone knows, and and, uh, I slipped out for a few minutes during this presentation, but it seems as though... The issue, the very simple and plain issue of when someone has nuclear weapons capability, it's a certain degree of let's, I'll clean it up for this audience, let's not, don't mess with us card. I notice on page 58, those members of the nuclear club, none of them have really been threatened by their neighbors with immediate war. I wonder if today Ukraine uh, is regretting the decision to rid themselves of some of those nuclear weapons. And my real issue is we calculate that there are 17 nations in Asia alone that have either research facilities or some dabbling, let's just say, in developing some technical expertise in nuclear technology. So don't you agree that though that's still element of Don't mess with us is perhaps the most important consideration for a lot of nation-states in the world and why many aspire to get these weapons.
0: Why why, why don't we we stick to the question about Ukraine, if that's okay. I think that will be clear. Henry, would you like to start with that?
1: I, I, I actually had to go talk to my counterparts and people more senior than myself in Ukraine about what they were going to do with what control they had over the nuclear weapons that were on their soil. By the way, the idea that they had possession of these things is a little uh, incorrect. Uh, There were things stationed on their soil. I don't think they had as much control over these things and the ability to fire or possess them, as people say. And they knew that. Uh, I think it's fair to say they do have a regret and relying or placing much emphasis on the kinds of pledges that we led them to believe we were making, which was, you'll be okay, the Russians will not take you over. We'll, 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 we'll do everything we can to make that not happen. We didn't promise it, it not legally binding, but they got that impression, and by the way, that's what they were worried about. I don't think for a moment, had they held on to those weapons, they would be in any better a situation with regard to the Crimea than they are today. I don't, I don't know one way or the other, but it's not clear to me how that would help.
0: You think there's a general lesson around the world that people have drawn from this, correctly or incorrectly? Well,
1: you know, you hope not. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's obvious it's a rhetorical question. Um, you know, in other places, to be honest, we have really defended countries who have foregone getting nuclear weapons or even those that we've caught getting them like Korea and told them to stand down. So I I think it's a mixed bag.
4: Uh, I I, I don't entirely agree with that. Um, I think a lot of, particularly in the Middle East but everywhere, they look at Mr. Gaddafi and they think to themselves, well, here's a guy who gave up a nuclear program and now he's pushing up daisies. Would Would that have happened to him had he not given up his nuclear program, oh, there go. Just, just like North Korea. And um, I think you're right in the case of Ukraine, the Russians, the Russian Russians made sure that right. there wasn't anybody who could get to it, to the, the uh, nuclear capability that was in located in Ukraine. But the idea that if you have a nuclear capability, the United States cannot push you around or... Change the regime. uh, I think it's a pretty powerful one. I think, frankly, that's the biggest incentive the Iranians have. They look at what's happened to Gaddafi. You know, when you
1: when you bring up those examples, I agree with you. So, yeah, I mean, this does make sense.
4: Well,
2: uh, let's split the difference though a little bit because there might be consequences for embarking on a full-on effort to acquire the bomb. and You might end up before the Security Council, for example. Uh, So, if if I were, uh, you know. An autocrat in a bad neighborhood. I think I would want to uh, uh, do everything I could to um, prepare the way for my possession of a nuclear weapon in the event I needed one. There you go. um, While not falling under this sort of sanctions regime or uh, the attention of uh, Mm. the Security Council. That's Um, a very important point. And and, and in that sense, I mean, I I think that is the goes to the second part of your question. Mm.
1: By the way, what this suggests to me is that if you can get a peaceful civilian program and get up to the edge, that's your smartest you know, shot. Which is actually
2: what I was getting at when I asked you the question, is if somebody's beginning a, a large-scale program along these days, these, uh, these days is that an, in, an indication that they're up to something? Yeah. And should uh, they be stopped if they're well, starting yeah, to... Well,
1: happen. you know, I think the, the level of suspicion after Iran ought to be higher in general. I think what we're taking away from our experience with Iran is much more uh, bad guy, good guy than, look, there are certain kinds of activities that ought to raise eyebrows no matter who's doing them. And so we've kind of lost the bubble on what's, what's useful to focus on.
0: Thanks. Uh, well, next question. Ma'am? Can we wait for... Uh... Microphone should be here in one moment. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I'm Elizabeth Clifford, <clears throat> and I'm just a private citizen. Your remarks are very bracing. They're also based for the most part on an assumption of rational behavior, both by us <laughs> and by them. This is a great strength and weakness of strategic thinking in this country. The Cuban Missile Crisis proved that we made a mistake but caught it in time. With the, pro- with the ascendance of non-state actors who are delusional at best, (coughs) how do we shape that part of our policy so that we even think we can manage that problem?
1: Well, how shall I put it? In the end, there's only so much one can do. Uh, I mean, I I went, the first (coughs) notice on my desk when I went to the Office of Net Assessment is there's only so much stupidity one man can prevent. Same thing goes for people who are hot temperamental, or hard hard to read, I think this puts a premium on not spreading the tools to do harm any further than you have to. And I think after that, it it, it gets into things well beyond my competence, and I don't write about it in the book. But I take your point. You know, uh, politics is not about logos. It's about pathos, pathos, and thumos, and other things. (laughs) that logos is only a, a constituent part. But logically,
2: more probably isn't better. And that much, I think, is the point of the book. As an editor, it's sometimes been necessary for me to translate uh, Henry from the Greek. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I like that question. Um, uh, and the um, reason I like it is because now I can say the problem is even worse than that. Uh, it's, it's not merely uh, irrational, which is the, the inability to calculate rationally. It's also miscalculation, which miscalculation. I think is a much more serious—I mean, in a way, a much more serious problem. Uh, you know, people don't um, uh, un- undertake courses of action that they think are going to result in uh, uh, rulers—I should say—don't undertake courses of action that they, th- that they think are going to result in their uh, deposition and demise. They don't, but yet right. uh, history happens. is replete with instances in that which they have taken courses of action that have led that way. I think Kissinger put it something
1: like. Never underestimate how shallow and important people are.
4: Well, I, I think that what, what, what you're really pointing to, we don't have solutions to that. But w- there could be some ideas, Henry kind of hinted at it, prevent these guys from getting the weapons. In other words, don't focus on them, but focus on those who might sell to them. Right. To me, that, and, and that's right that's up point. exactly what, what Henry's been saying, to me the problem is that nobody's thinking about it. I mean, first of all, we're still talking about defeating ISIS. Well, guess what? <laughs> good luck. Yeah, it's, it's going and it, to, and it won't be us who defeats them anyway. It'll be internal. But they're going to be around for a while. I mean, we thought the Ayatollahs would go. I mean, we're always predicting, you know, we predicted the Soviet Union wouldn't go, but we predicted after King uh, Faisal was killed in Saudi Arabia that the Saudi state would disappear pretty soon. I mean, we're very, very good at predictions. It's kind of like looking at last year's pennant race, deciding that this year's is going to be exactly the same. Never is. So we're not even thinking about the fact that if these guys are around, what, will, what else will they do? And would they try to get some kind of nuclear weapons capability? Would they try to acquire missiles? Missiles aren't all that hard to acquire. And then what do we do about it? I mean, at least we need to start thinking, which again is what Henry's been saying. We don't even bother
0: to think. Uh, this gentleman.
5: Thanks, Mr. Smith. Uh, Steve Luckett, I uh, work and study here in the city. Is this uh, Mr. Sokolsky uh, the great Andrew Marshall, who did the, uh, the
1: forward? <laughs> My former boss. So. You
5: are a very, very blessed man. That I'm this close to Yoda is, is really kind of cool. <laughs> well, um, there are two questions, maybe three. Could you, you can guys look at the one, okay please, the, the crisis and the tension uh, after the Indian uh, uh, Parliament bombing in uh, in December two thousand and one, and and um, the come to Jesus moment essentially that General Powell posed with uh, General Musharraf. Thanks. I'm I'm not okay. So you, the
1: question uh, is about, about, about Pakistan, is it? and, and the question is. What? I, I want to make sure I understood the,
5: the nature of the U.S. role in mediating
1: that conflict. Um, I see. Well, I can only uh, tell you what I heard when I worked in the Pentagon, and it's rumor. <laughs> uh, I don't know how close they were. I mean, I think that's point one. But point two, we took that very seriously. I think what's interesting is how seriously we took that. I mean, more, th- more interesting than how serious it was is how seriously we took it at least then. I think we have not been as serious about a lot of things since then.
0: That's all Hmm. I can say about that. I have one more question, and then uh, go with the gentleman all the way in the back. Sorry if I don't don't get to answer everyone's questions. Back. Hi. Oh, further
3: back.
0: Yes. you have the microphone. You have the mic. If you ask it quickly, then we'll finish with that gentleman behind. Okay, you.
3: quickly. First, uh, Bruce McDonald, a U.S. Institute of Peace and adjunct at Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, first, uh, thank you, Henry, for the contribution you've made with your book. I don't always agree with Henry, but one of the things the doggone guy makes me think, and that's exceptionally important. And also, I think I do agree with a number of things that are in your book. Uh, my question is, at least on the civilian side, Uh, I'm uh, continually uh, shocked by, uh, you know, you can point out all the reasons, as as you did, about why countries shouldn't do things in civilian nuclear power, but they go ahead and do it anyway. You know, they got developing their own uh, enrichment capacity uh, and so forth and why they ought to rely on things like fuel banks and one, two, three agreements, but they just don't do it. Uh, What new thinking uh, can you, uh, do you suggest we do, do we need uh, economic incentives what can uh, bring about more of the kind of rationality you've described when it comes to civilian nuclear power? Well,
1: they're, they're, first of all, uh, if one believes in the providence of the invisible hand, it's been trying to push the scales, but we fight it. And, and this is your point, which is even economics doesn't get listened to as much as you'd hope. But on balance, it does. If you take a look at how many nuclear power plants were supposed to be built and working right now in every country, including China, the number is way higher than it actually is. I don't think that's just an accident. Well, I mean, arguably, you could say Fukushima did slow things down. But people have to pay for and, and make provision for safety even for these facilities. So the first thing you you might do is is be much more candid about the numbers. I think that's beginning to happen, and I think that's the reason why bank investors are not keen on funding these things. All these projects, not many of them are financed, and when they are, they tend to be financed by Putin or someone, and at some point that's going to stop too. Uh, I think the second thing is, you know, when, when something becomes really, really desperate, and you don't know how to solve it, I always say the last refuge of any decent congressman or citizen is to take a look at the law. We don't do it, but occasionally when things get desperate, we'll we'll take a look at it. There is a law that says we're supposed to do energy assessments for various countries that are considering nuclear cooperation with us. We're supposed to do them on a routine basis and we're supposed to help them look at alternatives this has been on the books since 1978. It has never been implemented. I don't know. You ask. I mean, it's something specific.
5: There you go. We'll
0: just finish off with that one last question. So we started a few minutes late, so let's go a couple minutes late.
5: Greg Graves, I'm at the National Security Archives working on the Nuclear History Project. Could you
0: speak up a little oh. bit, or is the mic no, still Speak into out. the mic. Okay, thanks.
5: Um, I'm at the National Security Archives working on the Nuclear History Project. Um, do you think we need to broaden our definition or idea of what using a nuclear weapon is to include these kind of uh, coercive applications of apl- uh, atomic diplomacy, like uh, Mr. Putin's actions in getting, you know, 40 new ICBMs so that we can better appreciate the kind of secondary and tertiary um, ramifications for his actions and our potential policy responses?
1: That, that sounds like the kind of question where if I don't say yes, I'll create an enemy. <laughs> Uh, I endorse funding from all directions. How's that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, and again, congratulations, Henry. And please, I encourage you all, you've got copies of the book, I encourage you to read, and thank you all for coming this afternoon. And thank you, panelists. The on Todd Lindberg. Thanks very kindly.
1: Thank you.